This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I don't like and I don't respect the crocodile tears to, to the crocodile tears. No. Allow me to finish, and allow me to hear, allow me to finish. Listen, sir, allow me to finish, allow me to finish. Uh, sir, sir, I don't like to play, I don't like to play before an audience the Holocaust card. But since now I feel, now I feel compelled to, my late father was in Auschwitz. My late mother... Please shut up. My late father was in Auschwitz. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family on my father's side, on my father's side, the Jews did not take arms against the My late father was in Auschwitz concentration camp. My late mother was in Maidana concentration camp. Every single member of my family on both sides was exterminated. Both of my parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And it's precisely and exactly because of the lessons my parents taught me and my two siblings that I will not be silent when Israel commits its crimes against the Palestinians. And I consider nothing more despicable than to use their suffering and their martyrdom to try to justify the torture, the brutalization, the dem demolition of homes that Israel daily commits against the Palestinians. So I refuse any longer to be intimidated or browbeaten by the tears if you had any heart in you, you would be crying for the Palestinians, not for what's in That is the voice of uh, Professor Norman Finkelstein, who is joining me now to chat about the Holocaust industry. Norman, you've seen that clip, I'm sure, many times over the years. It still rings true, doesn't it? Um, well, my parents have passed. They passed in 1995. I wrote two books having to do with the Nazi Holocaust, one in 1998, I think, and then the Holocaust industry in 2001, 2000, 2000. And uh, since then, uh, for me, the Nazi Holocaust was something personal. It was my family, and it was something general. It was one among many, but certainly not the least, one of the among many uh, crimes uh, in the history of humanity. But I wouldn't say I focus on it much anymore, except occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, still trying to grapple with uh, the two parents in the home of which I grew up were absolutely ordinary. Mm. They were just ordinary people 
who went about the business of paying bills and raising their children and not having a too happy marriage, trying to reconcile the sheer ordinariness of my parents with the fact that for six years, from 1939 to 1945, they had suddenly discovered themselves or found themselves in the bowels of hell. And I've never really been able to grasp that. I can't see them. I remember as a child, I'll be reading books about the Nazi Holocaust. I'm reading the text and looking up, that was my mother? It was very hard to uh, make sense of it. But otherwise, I, I don't really think about it anymore, that it's been cheapened and exploited. Mm. Actually, the funny thing is, my mother ceased to be indignant. And I was the one who was indignant at the cheap, meretricious exploitation. She just, you know, rolled her eyes, more Holocaust industry, or as Abba Abin called it, more show of business. I would be indignant. Now, I can't even say I get angry anymore. It's so absurd. It's so shameless. It's so repellent that I kind of just, I guess I reached the same point as my late mother. I just roll my eyes. Before we talk about um, any of that, I don't know if you saw, but um, Germany, I think it is, uh, was it Poland? I forget now. Uh, has been asked to pay or has promised to pay 700 million US dollars to Holocaust survivors uh, who are suffering with COVID-19. Look, the way Jews carry on, they're almost like a caricature from Der Sturmer the Nazi publication, which was infamous for its caricatures of Jews. And the way Jews carry on, the Jewish leaders, not just the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish leaders in particular, they're like a caricature out of their Sturmer. COVID-19, COVID, uh, um, Holocaust survivors with COVID. The whole thing is just so ridiculous. The Nazi Holocaust occurred 75 years ago. The Nazis exterminated all the children and all the old people. The only ones who stayed alive were the ones who were in capable of doing work. So the average age cohort of a survivor was like my parents. They were born 1919, 1920. In 1940 to 45, you could do the math, they were 20 to mm -hmm. 25 years old. How many Holocaust survivors are there now who are 100 years old? The whole thing is ridiculous. I buried my parents 25 years ago. They were both real survivors. They died relatively young, as many survivors did. Who's around now? 
Who are these survivors? $700 million to whom? Who are they, these survivors? I'd be curious to meet them. They're no survivors. The whole thing is just a joke. So it's, it's, um, the, Ger the Germans, they engage in this kind of perpetual passion play, the passion steal, always beating their uh, breasts to show the world how good they are. Really? I wish they would shut up already. I'm sick of the Germans and their passion plays about the Jews. I've had enough. There are new generations of Jews. They're absolutely serious, morally serious. They're smart. Mm. The Nazi Holocaust means nothing to them. It's something from ancient history. You know, my students, they haven't a clue what the war in Vietnam was. Now, the war in Vietnam was a seminal event for me growing up. The estimates are about three to four million uh, Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians, about two million Vietnamese and then one million Laotians, were killed by the Americans. That's a large number of people killed. My generation, the, the new generation, they don't even know what Vietnam is. So you take the Germans, Vietnam was the 1960s. The Nazi Holocaust was for Germans, it was the 1940s. So the young people, it's something from which they're wholly detached. And to try to just keep beating them, beating them with it, you know, it's so... so before I ask you my sort of opening question, let's do some housekeeping here uh, because there's been an, a lot of uh, resistance to, to this particular conversation, which I think vindicates your book, The Holocaust Industry. Um, you, you've got quite a, a story to tell. Your, your book is not that long, so I would recommend everybody who hasn't read it to read it. It's fairly easy reading. Um, and it's extremely well footnoted as well. And that's something I've noticed about you, Norman, is that you are ex exceptionally, um, uh, what's the word? You, you, you focus on detail um, f in, in a phenomenal way uh, so, as, so as to be as accurate as possible and as logical as possible. But something that I must just point out to those who are listening and viewing right now. The framework of this conversation is not about whether or not the Nazi Holocaust happened. It did. It did, and it was systematic. That isn't up for debate, just as much as apartheid here in South Africa happened. All right? These are historical events that happened. Um, so before anybody takes this conversation out of context, at least on my part, I need to just put that disclaimer there. Now, going forward... The, the, the overarching talking point, Norman, is the Holocaust industry. Now, it, it's, it, it sounds very offensive, um, but basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially the profiteering of a handful of elites who pretended to, to, to make money on behalf of actual Holocaust victims, but they in, inevitably exploited the suffering of the Jews who died in the Nazi Holocaust? Well, the book had two major things. One is the political exploitation of the Nazi Holocaust 
to shield Israel from legitimate criticism. For, hold on for one half moment. Let me just turn off the phone. Hello? Hello? I'm, do, I'm, I'm doing an interview right now, so I have to cut it off. You'll have to call me tonight, okay? Thank you. So the book is divided into two parts. One is the political exploitation of the Nazi Holocaust to shield, to immunize Israel from legitimate criticism of its human rights crimes in the occupied Palestinian territories and also against Lebanon and neighboring Arab countries. And the other part is the exploitation, or I should say the extort, extortion of European countries in the late 1990s uh, in the name of what were called needy Holocaust victims. And there was really a gang of Jewish crooks, uh, Jewish communal leaders, Jewish politicians, Jewish lawyers. There was the occasional goy, but it was overwhelmingly Jewish. And they latched on to this extortion racket. Uh, they first targeted the Swiss banks because everybody hates Swiss banks, you know, the fat Swiss bankers, so they were easy prey. And they concocted a totally absurd story that Jews had deposited huge amounts of money in Swiss banks. They were then killed during World War II and their legitimate heirs when they tried to withdraw the money that the martyrs deposited, they were denied the monies that were owed to their family. This was all a fantastic, absurd, groundless, baseless, preposterous concoction by these Jewish organizations, but as I said, it was Jewish communal leaders, in particular the World Jewish Congress, Edgar Bronfman and Rabbi Israel Singer, Jewish lawyers, in particular Bert Newborn, but several, quite a few Jewish lawyers, Jewish public officials, uh, in particular Jewish controllers, C-O-M-P-T-R-O-L-L-E-R-S, controllers. You might wonder why Jewish controllers, because a lot of cities have invested pension funds in the Swiss banks. And so when they threatened to withdraw their monies, the bank monies, the city monies, the city monies, of the pension funds and the banks, that's when the banks actually capitulated. It wasn't the lawyers or the lawsuits, it was the fear of the mass withdrawal of these pension funds, uh, beginning with New York, but then it spread all across the country. So that was the other aspect of the Holocaust industry. That aspect is gone, the extortion, basically because uh, Clinton played along with it for various reasons not worth going into. But once Clinton left office, the U.S. ceased to put its weight behind this extortion racket, and so it died. 
so that was what I referred to then as the Holocaust industry. But where did that go to? I mean, you've in your book you 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 note that uh, for the first couple decades uh, there were only I think two books. Uh, yeah, the Nazi Holocaust. A... There was there was no interest in the Nazi Holocaust. You have to remember, or you couldn't possibly remember, because you're way too young. When I was growing up, it was an embarrassment to be the child of Holocaust survivors. It wasn't a source of pride, because there were two, you might call it, stereotypes about the Jews and the Nazi Holocaust. Stereotype number one, the Jews went like sheep to slaughter. They were cowards. So if you were a Holocaust survivor, you were part of that moment in history where Jews went like sheep to slaughter, and you were supposed to be ashamed of it, you know? And the second stereotype was, if you did survive, it must have been because you did something dirty. It was a, fun, it was a kind of irony. Many people, okay, I won't say many, a few, because most people have no interest in Nazi Holocaust. But eventually, some people would ask my mother, how did you survive? My mother got so angry at that question. Actually, it was a completely innocent question. I'm curious, how did you survive? But she always felt there was an insinuation that she must have done something dirty. That's how she survived. So she would respond indignantly, what do you mean, how did I survive? You know, uh, because that was how the Nazi Holocaust was projected to the extent that there was any discussion of it, how it was projected. The Jews were cowards. And if you survive, it must have been something dirty. So the Nazi Holocaust, to the extent that it was even discussed, and it really wasn't, but to the extent that it was, it was a source of embarrassment. It was a source of shame. That changed after the June 1967 war mm. for various reasons, which you may or may not want to get into. But there was no Holocaust. There were two scholarly studies by uh, Raoul Hilberg and Gerald Reitlinger. Even the memoirs, you take Anne Frank. Now, it's true. In seventh grade or eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade English, I can't remember what, junior high school we call it, we did read Anne Frank's diary, but we did not read it as a Jewish book. Now, you may f find that odd, but we read it as a story about human suffering. The Jewish aspect was filtered out. So even when the Nazi Holocaust intruded in the classroom, it actually was um, purified of its mm -hmm. Jewish element. Uh, there was no Nazi Holocaust. There were no movies about that Nazi Holocaust. But Even what... watch the, like Exodus. Mm. Exodus is a, is a ship coming to Israel, but most of the film is about Israel, mm. the founding of the state of Israel. It's not about, you know, obviously a Nazi Holocaust looms there, but it's not a film about the Holocaust. It's a film about the founding of Israel. Um, there was, uh, to my recollection, you know, my memory is a little bit vague now, but I don't recall 
any films about the Nazi Holocaust. It wasn't, um, it wasn't part of our uh, culture. It became part of the culture when Israel in cahoots with American Jews and also U.S. administration, where Israel was now a U.S. ally, so why not play up the Holocaust if it helps Israel uh, do its dirty work? Um, that all didn't start until the late 1960s. So then what happened? How did it suddenly accelerate from, from the early 70s onwards? Well, remember, I keep saying remember, assuming you know these facts, and there's no reason why you should know these facts. <laughs> Israel always had its Holocaust industry. It always used, exploited the Nazi Holocaust. There was a Yad Vashem museum. There was the Eichmann trial in Israel, which was a very orchestrated event. It was fine-tuned by the then Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to try to create a national ethos in Israel. But Israel was a nothing place back then. It was this backwater. It was very simple. It was poor. And American Jews had no interest at all in Israel. The only time Israel ever intruded in American life was when they would ask for money to plant the tree in Israel. That was it. Israel didn't, it was, it was a backwater, very primitive place. Once Israel became a U.S. strategic ally and American Jews became very proud of Israel because now we finally had what we never had. We had Jewish fighters. We never had that. So it kind of effaced, erased the memory of Jews going like sheep to slaughter. Jews were now fighters. Remember, the, the, the uh, stereotype of a Jew was someone like Franz Kafka with the big ears, cerebral. Even in the United States, the stereotypical Jews were whom? First, of course, Einstein. And then secondly, I'm not, I don't mean this is a joke, I mean it literally, was Woody Allen. That was, he was the, the stereotypical Jew. Horn rim glasses, uh, physically feeble, cerebral, uh, uh, bohemian. That was the Jew. And then guess what happens? Along comes the new Jew, Moshe Dayan, a pirate's patch on his eye. Whoever thought of a Jewish pirate? And then he's a general or chief of staff at that point. And they defeat the Arab armies. Jews are fighters. It was a whole new addition to the Jewish vocabulary, a Jewish fighter. And so there was a surge of pride in Israel by American Jews. And for American ruling elites, Israel was a military asset in the Middle East. They had done the United States a huge favor. The biggest fear that 
the Americans had in that era was of Gamal Abdul Nasser, this radical Arab nationalist, who was going to, or so he said, he was going to unify the Middle East into a progressive modern force. And that would mean the United States is critical um, sphere of influence, the Middle East might fall out of its control, or that was the fear. Nasser's principal enemies were our clients, like Saudi Arabia. So, what did Israel do in 1967? Israel dealt a death blow to, ra to radical Arab nationalism. It was over. It was over. There was then a decade gap and then something strange happened. Um, radical Islamic nationalism emerged in Iran, but that was totally unpredicted. You know, it was thought, it was all over now. We decapitated Nasser, the end of radical Arab nationalism. Israel was the fearsome um, uh, power in the Middle East. And so a love affair developed between American Jews in Israel and the U.S. state in Israel. And obviously there was criticism of various aspects of Israeli policy, in particular. Uh, at that point, it was not the occupation of the West Bank in Gaza, it was the occupation of Egypt. The Israelis occupied the Sinai. And the Egyptians were desperately trying to get Israel to withdraw from the Egyptian Sinai. Uh, but in any event, that's when the Nazi, that's when the, what happened was the cottage industry in Israel, the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, and those, that little thing, the Americans, because the American Jews had the money, they had the power, they had the resources, so they took that little cottage industry called the Holocaust, you know, in Israel, the little cottage industry, and then turned it into something spectacular, really spectacular. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of books, articles, newspaper features, and then the movies began one after another, after another, after another hundreds by now of Holocaust films uh, became a, a quite substantial industry. Why, though, would it be considered a bad thing? I mean, isn't, isn't it a form of remembrance, Norman? No, it has nothing to do with remembrance. These people don't care about the Nazi Holocaust. They have no interest in, in the actual events. They never particularly, incidentally, they never particularly liked the survivors. There were genuine survivors, not many, but there were some. Uh, but the, gen the, the, the survivors didn't fit the image they wanted. They create this whole mythology about Jews resisting, you know, in the Warsaw Ghetto and elsewhere, this... Jewish resistance, total mythology, you know, total fantasy. Listen, 
The Russian Red Army had troubles defeating Hitler. You're telling me Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto inflicted the defeat on the Nazi occupiers? It's totally crazy, totally crazy. So but they didn't like the survivors. Um, they just, it, it served ideological purposes, emotional purposes, psychological purposes, but the actual event they had no interest in. Nobody really cared to hear what my parents had to say. Uh, you know, growing up, it was a strange thing. Uh, I grew up in a very smart Jewish neighborhood. If I told you the people who went to my high school, even way off in Africa, in South Africa, you wouldn't believe it. The Senate Majority Leader, Charles Schumer, right now, the Senate, mm. went to my, Charles, Chuck Schumer, he's called, he was back then, went to my high school. Bernie Sanders, he went to my high school. The Supreme Court Justice who just died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she went to my high school. Five, five, not one, not two, not three, not five Nobel laureates went to my high school. And I could go on and on. Really, I could go on and on. And it was a public high school. My point being, these were very smart people. Very smart people. And I lived in very political times. I grew up in the 1960s. Politics was omnipresent. The war in Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the urban black rebellions, it was everywhere and everyone was talking politics. But I'll tell you something. Now my both of my parents were survivors and they were the real deal. They aren't all these fake survivors. But they were real survivors. I could tell you without fear of contradiction, if you put a polygraph to my wrist now. I could tell you, I do not recall one friend, one, or parent of a friend, not one, who ever asked my parents a single question about what happened to them. Nobody cared. Even after the Holocaust industry, because my parents didn't fit the type. My parents. I won't say they were leftists, but they were Stalinists. They loved the Soviet Union. They didn't care what you said about anything else, except we could never say anything against Stalin, because it was the Red Army that defeated the Nazis, and that's all they cared about. So my parents were kind of a they were a strange, a rare bird, a strange bird. I was probably the only family in the whole United States. Forget, even the Communist Party had repudiated Stalin. I was probably the only family in the United States where my parents would not accept any criticism of Stalin. If I said one word against them, immediately my mother and father would say, traitor. I mean, a traitor. But they did go through it. My father was in Auschwitz. He was in the Auschwitz death march. He was in eight concentration camps. He had a story to tell. Mm. My mother was in... Maidana concentration camp, then two slave labor camps. Every single member of my family, as you know from the clip, on both sides. I never had a grandparent. I never had an aunt. I never had an uncle. I never had a cousin. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Actually, the other day I was telling someone, 
Okay, my parents were resolute atheists, so there was no talk about the bar mitzvah in my home. I wasn't bar mitzvah. That's the coming of age celebration for a Jew when you turn 13. But there was another reason. There was nobody to invite. Bar mitzvah is a family wow. event where the family celebrates, you know, the extended family, Mm. he had reached adulthood. Who were we going to invite? My mother and father? Well, I see them every day at dinner. (laughs) There was nobody to invite. So my point is, my parents had a story, Mm. but nobody was interested. So when you tell me suddenly they care about the Holocaust, no, they never cared about the Holocaust. They cared about an image of the Holocaust. It was pure, total solipsism. So they could feel sorry for the Jews of whom we're one. Not me, I'm talking about them. Mm. So they could feel sorry for themselves. It was solipsism. They never gave a damn about the, the real Jews, the real suffering. It's all a crock. Norman, in your book, you you said that the billions and billions of dollars that was that were sorry meant to go to the Holocaust survivors. Your mother only received, I think, it was three and a half thousand dollars. Three thousand. Yeah. And where did the rest of that money go? You know where it went. It went into the pockets of Jewish crooks, Jewish organizations. That's where it went. You're shocked. You're so shocked that Jews, like every other group, has a bunch of hucksters and crooks who make profits off of the misery and the suffering of others. That's so shocking to you. How many times have you heard stories about there's a flood or a famine somewhere in Africa and money pours in and it goes into the hands of the, the, crooked, the crooked African leaders? That should shock you. So the Jews do the same thing. They took all the money for themselves. There was one guy, I I absolutely hate the guy. I absolutely hate the guy. His name is Bert Newborn. He's one of these typical liberal Jews, big fake. He went around, this is the, you know, you can't make this stuff up. He went around during the whole extortion of the Swiss banks, the extortion of the Germans, and extortion of others, but mostly uh, mostly it was the Swiss and the Germans. Uh, he went around saying, I'm doing this pro bono. He's a lawyer. I'm doing this pro bono for needy Holocaust victims in the memory of my daughter. His daughter was a rabbinical student who died prematurely, I guess in her 20s. And he would get very solemn and very pious. You know how much money he raked in? $10 million. I used to comb to his face. Oh, look who's here. The pro bono Holocaust huckster. That's what they did. Cared about survivors. A joke. So, Norman? They didn't care about the survivor. It was all, all was and still is. It's all solipsism. They get to feel sorry for themselves. Oh, what a terrible thing happened to the Jews. What a terrible thing happened to us. No, no, no. It didn't happen to us. 
You are here. You are having a good life. You all made it. Jews are the richest ethno-religious group in the United States. You're doing just fine. It didn't happen to us. It happened to my parents. And they want to appropriate it so they can feel sorry for themselves. It didn't happen to us. Are you saying that it's some sort of like perpetual victimhood status? Yeah, they, well, look, everyone likes to pretend, you know, in our society, I don't know about South Africa, everyone likes to play the victim. We call it the oppression sweepstakes. And everybody wants to be more victimized than the other, you know. So, of course, Jews play into that. But, you know, it's also a way to immunize yourself from criticism. They always they play the Holocaust card. You can't say anything critical of Jews. Impossible. The Holocaust, you know. So, yeah, I mean, so is that now part of the modern Holocaust industry post-67? Yeah. yeah, but, you know, there are two things. First of all, it does have a shelf life. I mean, when you, at some point, the survivors are dead. Mm. You know, so there is a shelf life. I don't know. I it's hard for me to gauge. Uh, I I can't say I have a lot of young Jewish friends. Uh, so I, I, it's hard for me to gauge how the how Nazi Holocaust plays out among the new generation of mm. Jews. Uh, I'm not sure. Does does this industry? play into the hands of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, look, it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster for the Palestinians. You know, it's, uh, I think, as Edward Said once put it, we're the victims of the victims. Edward Said being the prominent spokesperson for the Palestinians in the, uh, basically, the 70s, 80s, 1970s and 1980s. Yeah. And, uh, it's been given, it gave Israel a blank check, Nazi Holocaust, because the view was, I'm not saying I agree with it, but that the suffering of Jews during the Nazi Holocaust was unique, was called the uniqueness doctrine. And therefore, you can't apply the same rules of the game, namely human rights law, international law. You can't apply the same rules of the game to Israel because the suffering of the Jews was unique. And therefore, Israel basically got a blank check to do as it liked because none of the, none of the, the conventional standard principles and rules of law of human rights apply to it so it was a it was a it was an ace in the hole for the israelis and for american jews defending them which would probably be why somebody like me who is not jewish uh, would be uh, accused of being anti-semitic were i to criticize israel Everybody has the right to criticize Israel. Even if you're an anti-Semite, you have the right. 
The question is whether what you're saying is true or not. I don't really care about your motives. Mm. The question is what, what, whether what you're saying is true or not. And if it's true, it sticks. And if it's not true, I don't care if your motives are beautiful. It's still not true. Mm. So what is... So I, I, um, I, I, I examine the facts on the basis of whether they're true or not. Now, who's saying them? Mm. Now, what is the way out of this, Norman? Uh, what's the way out of it? I think, basically, I haven't changed my opinion from my conclusion in the Holocaust industry. I haven't looked at the book in years, but I do have a fairly clear recollection. You have to restore proportions. There's a lot of there's been a lot of suffering in human history. Certainly, the Nazi Holocaust was a chapter in, this, in the history of human suffering. Certainly, it, ha it deserves a place in the history in the annals of human suffering. But there have been other people, other suffering other crimes and we have to restore a sense of balance once we restore a sense of balance from my point of view then uh it's perfectly fine to commemorate and memorialize and remember uh that chapter in human suffering and it should it should be memorialized and remembered it was ghastly it was horrible uh, the suffering was uh, of a um, of a breathtaking magnitude, so it should be remembered, memorialized. I wouldn't want it, what happened to my parents to be forgotten. Mm. But there's a limit. There's a limit. I will not read any article. I will. I never saw Schindler's List. I didn't see any of the films. I'm. I was sick of it. I was sick of it, the way everyone was making a buck or pretending to all this public piety over what was done to my family. So I don't want to hear from it anymore. Mm. I wrote a book on it in 1998 with my co-author Ruth Bettina Byrne. I then wrote a book not about the Holocaust. And the Holocaust industry has nothing whatsoever to do with what happened. I accept the basic facts. There are competent, qualified, in some cases like Raoul Hilberg, uh, brilliant historians. They set out the record. I see no reason to dispute any of the basic facts. Of course, we could dispute this and that other fact, mm. but the basics are pretty clear. They're pretty clear. Uh, so I didn't talk about the Nazi Holocaust at all in the book. Yeah. I only talked about how it was exploited. In any event, after I finished that second book, I never read another book. Oh, well, I read one more. About three years ago, I was curious what the latest scholarly literature shows. So I, I picked up a book. I found it tremendously boring, but that's another story. 
Um, I don't, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I will never read a book about, or I, I will never read a newspaper article about it. I literally won't. Now, New York Times, every day there's an article about the Nazi Holocaust. Remember, this is a newspaper, like news. So for them, the Nazi Holocaust is still news. It's not news. Their readership is rich Jews on the Upper East Side. So they toss them a Holocaust article every day to keep their leadership, their readership happy and loyal. It's just a business transaction. It's a way to secure circulation. They don't care about the Nazi Holocaust. They care about their readership base mm. of Upper East Side billionaire Jews. That's all it is. I don't. I will not look at those articles. They nauseate me. N a u s e a t e. They <laughs> nauseate me. All this cheap marketing of a people suffering mm. for your for your business circulation. You know. Um, so I don't have anything to do with it anymore, except, of course, as I say, still grappling. Mm what happened to my parents norman i'm sure that you've received this comment many times but i'll 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 read it to you um norman you're just a self-loathing jew how do you i don't you know what you know what i don't know if einstein was a self-loathing jew or a self-loving jew i don't know but does that change the fact that E equals MC squared? No. The facts are the facts. You can psychoanalyze me till the end of time. Go ahead. But tell me what tell me what that I'm saying is not true. Mm. Tell me what I'm saying that's not true. I, I'd be curious. I'm interested in truth. If I'm misrepresenting the facts, tell me. And you know what? If you can show me I've misrepresented them, I will certainly correct them. I'm a stickler for facts. My credo in life, I coined it for myself, is, quote, never quarrel with facts. You know, I'm not... A, so you can call me whatever you want. And who knows? You know, do you understand? How old are you? I'm 42. 42, you're going to find that when you're 72 and 82, you still won't understand what makes you tick. Yeah. You know, what are your motives? What are your real motives? You know, plunging, plumbing the depths of your psyche. Maybe you know something about my psyche. I don't know. Who the hell knows? Right. Well, the great Israeli philosopher, his name was Yeshayahu Leibovitch. And he had all these PhDs, a bag, a bag full of PhDs. And they once asked him, Professor Leibovitch, do you analyze your dreams? And he replied, analyze my dreams? I have enough trouble making sense of my waking hours. Which made a lot of sense to me. You know? So, um, you go analyze me till the end of time. But tell me where I'm wrong. Mm. 
tell me where I'm wrong in what I'm saying. The Swiss banks wasn't a heist. The lawyers didn't get rich. Nobody gave a darn about the Nazi Holocaust before it became politically useful. Show me where I'm wrong. In fact, the greatest living historian of the Nazi Holocaust was Raoul Hilberg. Hilberg was a right-wing right wing Republican. His politics and I were like Nelson Mandela and the clerk, you know, or bo both of Nelson Mandela and Botha, pick Botha. When he looked at my findings, you know what he said? He said, my findings were conservative. It was actually much worse than what I described. <laughs> it's at the back of the book. He said, I went through the same record as Finkelstein. He said, his findings are conservative. So... Norman, um, I should get going now because I, I have an appointment and I should uh, head out. All right. Uh, it was nice talking to you. Look, I've received a lot of negative emails yeah. about you. And maybe they were, some of them were true. I don't know. I'm not in South Africa. However, the main concern of many of the people who emailed me was that you were a Holocaust denier and you were going to start with a denial. We established, at least as far as I could tell from this program, we established that's not true. And I see no reason, at least from this program, to uh, engage in a discussion with you, to hear you out, and for you to hear me out. So. I think that's a positive thing. I don't know anything about your past, but I would hope that just as I learned something from this conversation, namely, uh, I can have a conversation with you. I can talk to you. I hope you learned the same thing. Stick by the truth. Do your best to find out the facts. And then let your politics be guided by that. But the moment your politics are no longer guided by that, in my opinion, you're lost. You're in a dark forest without a GPS. So I hope you realize that. Mm. I am fair. I am reasonable. I will never be silent or indifferent to human suffering and I'll never use my parents' martyrdom in order to justify another people's suffering. On the other hand, I would never, ever, ever, ever be party to any endeavor or attempt to diminish what was done to my family. 100%. Okay. Nice, nice talking to Norman, you. Norman, you are a true gentleman. Thank you for your time. Please keep your word yes. in full our yes. remarks. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.